Welcome back to Talking Feds, a prosecutor's roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials for a dynamic discussion of the most important legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. I'm a former United States attorney and deputy assistant attorney general and a current Washington Post columnist. We are here this week in Washington, D.C. to tape a series of podcast episodes in front of a live audience just blocks from the White House and the Congress. All of this thanks to our gracious hosts at George Washington University Law School. And our co-sponsors for this episode, in particular, the American Constitution Society. All right, so in pursuing articles of impeachment, the House of Representatives has chosen, wisely, I think, to focus on a narrow band of conduct by President Trump that amounts to a nearly airtight fact pattern and an overwhelming, uh, case, isolated case, though, of abuse of presidential powers for personal advantage. But of course, critics of the administration see this little chapter as an extension of a three-year assault on the rule of law, democratic institutions, and basic American values. And today, we turn to another such assault, one that will certainly be counted as among the administration's moral and political failings when the ledger is counted. And that's its treatment of migrants and migrant families. We have a superbly qualified circle of public interest advocates and scholars to break it down for us and explain the legal policy and moral repercussions of the administration's conduct. First, Leon Rodriguez joins us for the first time on Talking Feds. Leon is a partner in the Labor and Employment Department of the law firm Safarth Shaw in town. He was, however, in the Obama administration, the director of the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. Before that, he was a deputy assistant attorney general in the Civil Rights Division and a longtime state and federal prosecutor, among other places, in the Civil Rights Division and the Western District of Pennsylvania, where his excellence was, uh, and general record was marred only by an unfortunate uh, tendency to outshine his boss. Uh, that was and who was his boss? <laughs> that was I. Welcome, Leah. Thanks for being here. Andrea Santino is regional counsel for the Washington, D.C. office of the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Educational Fund, known as MALDEF. She oversees MALDEF's legislative and regulatory work in Washington and litigation work covering the U.S. Courts of Appeals for the District of Columbia, 4th and 11th Circuits. Thank you very much for, for joining us, Andrea. Thanks for having me. Um, next, we have Lindsay Harris. Lindsay is Associate Professor of Law and Co-Director of the Immigration and Human Rights Clinic at the University of the District of Columbia. She was an asylum attorney and worked with the American Immigration Council on efforts to end family detention before she joined the faculty at UDC Law, where she directs uh, the clinic focused on actual representation of asylum seekers. And in addition to her hands-on work, she has a long list of articles and other publications dealing with immigration and asylum issues. Thanks for yeah. coming, Liz. Thank you for having me. And finally, we're so pleased to welcome back Vanita Gupta to Talking Feds. Vanita is the president and CEO of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. 
Uh, prior to that, as many of you know, she served as, well, first the principal deputy assistant attorney general and then the assistant attorney general in the civil rights division at the U.S. Department of Justice from 2014 to 2017. But in her current work, the Leadership Conference, which was founded and came to prominence in the civil rights struggles of the 50s and 60s, today in its, in its focus on, on two or three uh, issues of justice in particular, has a special priority and focus for immigrants' rights. Thank you so much for being here today. Great to be here again. So let's just sort of set it up. You know, how much of a fantasy uh, has the president sold to the American people? Presumably, in the last couple of years, at least one rapist and murderer has crossed uh, the border, if it's not hordes of thousands of roving killers. So, I mean, is there, is the, is the um, fears that drive the policy changes without any support, really, or is it a matter of, of just you know, overemphasis of what is a reasonable issue for policymakers to try to encounter, to confront? Yeah, I, I, if, if, it, if it has any support, it's negligible anecdotal support. Um, the the uh, criminal uh, public safety issues that he's focused on are not the ones that are care. Those are not the people that are caravanning up to to the border. Uh, those are inv- who invariably, are the people who are caravanning? Uh, you know, up the, to the those border. are those are people who are you know certainly fleeing poverty. I mean, I don't think we should deny that they're fleeing poverty, uh, but they're also uh, fleeing uh, uh, intense levels of gang violence. And they're coming from the countries with the first, second, and fourth highest levels of homicides on the planet. On the planet. Those, um, be, those countries being? Uh, Honduras, uh, Guatemala, and El Salvador. So what we call the, the, the Northern Triangle, uh, not to mention uh, incredibly high levels of domestic violence all coupled with uh, pub- completely failed public safety institutions, such that if you look at our Department of State travel warnings for those countries, they pretty much tell you don't count on the police <laughs> right. for anything. Uh, but that's not something that we are we, we're, we're seeming to want to consider. Well, Andres, um, so do you agree with the basic diagnosis? And by the way, is, if it's so, if it's you know gang violence, maybe domestic violence coupled with a complete. Uh, failure of local law enforcement. Has that problem uh, increased in the years before Trump, or did he just fasten on to something that was already there and run with it? Well, I think we have to, so I agree, and I think we have to remember that what has been going on in Central America has been going on for a very long time, and the United States has had a role in that. Very long time. I mean, these are issues that we have been talking about predating the Obama administration in terms of the rise in violence and some of the issues that we that we have been talking about today about, you know, migrants coming to the border and seeking relief. I I know, you know, Leon is well-versed in them because they were at I'm sure everyone here is well-versed in them because these were active topics that we have been talking about for quite a long time to deal with what is a humanitarian crisis and trying to slap what I think is often characterized as an immigration band-aid on top of that. I agree. I wholeheartedly agree. I think that some of the levels of violence that we're seeing in the Northern Triangle are a product of actually American exports. So we hear President Trump talk about Mara Salvatrucha or MS-13 or M-18 and the gang members. Those gangs are actually they actually have their roots in Los Angeles. 
People started the gangs on the streets of Los Angeles. And so we deported gang members to El Salvador and sometimes, and often people who because weren't, they were weren't gang members because they originally yeah. you know, had ties in El Salvador. Maybe they had come here as children as part of often economic migration or as part of the, the violence in the 80s and 90s in those countries as refugees. Well, so Benito, excuse me one sec, because now I want to go back to Leon and, and return to our, our crime fighting hat. So it sounds like actually... You know, maybe it was a, a, a uh, intelligent policy from the point of view of law enforcement in the U.S. to have people who were making trouble on the streets of Los Angeles and deport them. This might have been an, an unintended consequence. But is it really the case that it's the Crips and Bloods from con- whatever who are now making life miserable for the for the migrants fleeing the the, the triangle that they, they, they certainly are the you know at, at this point the the descendants uh, mm-hmm. of, of those gang members you know one thing I just never want us to help. forget is those aren't the people coming to the border right yeah. by and large might there mm-hmm. be one or two mixed in it's possible yeah. uh, but by and large these are uh, families and and by the way, you who stop are, and, are, and, and probably and all of us have a story of at least meeting one, uh, ten, a hundred families who tell stories that'll bring you to tears in a second. Has anybody here been um, there? Have, has anyone here been to the border? I mean, or or in Mexico? To, to I've been in Mexico. I've met I've met migrant yeah. families in Mexico. Actually, yeah. when when I was in in the Obama administration. Uh, and, and the things that that I heard directly from people validated exactly what we thought was driving them here. Mm-hmm. So, Vanita, to you, if, in terms of diagnosis of the problem, is that, in fact, what we're basically talking about? First of all, just, you know, families fleeing gang violence, domestic violence, et cetera, caused by a total vacuum in law enforcement in their native countries uh, and, a, and, and a rise in the last 15 years because trace to the gang activities down there is I mean, that is uh, definitely a part of the story. I think it's also important to get back to a point that Leon made, which is there's also um, a great deal of economic insecurity and poverty that folks are fleeing as well that is combined with violence. But I but I feel like we're playing within the president's frame right now, and it's um, I think we have to be careful. We have to recognize that what has happened with the humanitarian crisis at the border has also been pitched by the president um, in a narrative that is really designed for fear-mongering and is racially based. And the reality is when you have a president who has been repeatedly, instance after instance, you know, condemning um, Haitian immigrants or immigrants coming from asshole countries and uh, talking about the Norwegians as like the ideal immigrants. And, um, you know, that we really now say have, that I didn't know that one. Yeah, he yeah. said that. I mean, I have there's a list that I, I you know, we could all sit here and talk about. Um, but there have been so many instances just showing the degree to which uh, racism has animated. And yesterday, of course, um, the Southern Poverty Law Center released a series of emails that Stephen Miller, the architect behind some of the most vicious anti-immigrant policies of this White House, was sending back in 2015 and 2016 to Breitbart mm-hmm. to really help fuel the Breitbart's own coverage of these issues. He is now in a position of great power, uh, seated next to the Oval, you know, just doors away from the Oval Office and helping to design some of this stuff. There is a deeply kind of white supremacist, racist um, 
uh, uh, view animating our current immigration conversation. It's not to say that this problem uh, is new to the Trump administration. Uh, Any of us that were working in the Obama administration were contending with some of these very difficult questions. There is clearly a void of policymaking that is at Congress's feet, and we have to hold Congress responsible for their failure repeatedly over the last many years to actually put forth affirmative solutions to this. But I worry a lot about just kind of talking about our immigration humanitarian crisis in the context of law and order. That is exactly where the president wants us to have this conversation, whereas there's this is there are some very particular dynamics and ones frankly that politicians but including this president are using for electoral gain and you saw it in the lead up to the midterms where he was you know trying to invoke all of these fears around the caravans that were approaching the border and it turned out that in effect there was a lot of hype uh, and hyperbole and also characterization of the men and women and kids that were coming to the border but, it, you know, and we've seen it be the, the, the justification or basis for some of the most horrible moral um, excesses of the administration, including separating young children from yeah, their parents. Yeah, which we'll get to in a second. But I, I, this is actually a sort of departure. But do we know? I, you could take this, you know, from the Steve Bannon vantage point as kind of a political masterstroke. What's the genesis of the idea to repackage this humanitarian crisis as a as a crime wave did did Steve Miller come up with it one day on the campaign and trail? We, did Trump? Do we yeah. know? I mean, we have to remember how the president started his campaign. Right. He started out the campaign coming down that elevator and calling essentially all Mexican immigrants murderers and rapists and criminals. Um, this comes from the political gain that he wants to you know to have in. Both, you know, the previous election and in this election moving into 2020. Um, and it's a way for him to rile up uh, certain parts of the country. It's a way for him to instill fear in other parts of, you know, in, in other populations, predominantly communities of color. And I think it's really... Um, you know, it's really a, a way to try to, I think, push off what is the inevitable, right? America is going to become uh, majority minority in short order. There are going to be, you know, thirty years, right? You mm-hmm. know, Latinos mm-hmm. are going to uh, take over. Um, I think as the one of the largest sectors of the American electorate. Um, pretty soon, and we already represent one quarter of all children across the country. Um, and so the dynamics of America's population is very much changing. And I think that the rhetoric that Trump uses in the immigration space is in order uh, is is a way for him to divide our country along racial lines um, and to use immigrants as a scapegoat um, to. Uh, to rile up his base. The thing for me is 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 Trump. Trump is uh, harvesting in, in fertile ground. In, in other words, this is, Donald Trump invented none of the things right. uh, that he said. He he is basically repeating things that unfortunately. Uh, have been themes throughout our history. Uh, there has always been an undercurrent of, of nativism, uh, white nationalism. Uh, most of us, I, you know, I, I, I know where most of us come from in, in our own families have been, uh, whether we're Jewish, Latino, Indian, take your choice. Uh, most of our families have been victim of these kinds of sentiments uh, throughout the history of the country. Um, there's also, uh, sadly, there is there is a there is an attempt to also into 
intellectualize uh, those kinds of sentiments that unfortunately originated where you and I used to live uh, in Pittsburgh and in, in, uh, Cordelia Scaife uh, creating this whole sense of a, uh, an America that already was, was too large, too overpopulated, and then seeding all these organizations like the Center for Immigration Studies uh, and FAIR that have attempted to provide some empirical and intellectual support for what really are these fairly ugly nativist, white yeah. nationalist uh, kinds of sentiments. All right. So one more basic table setting point is to just try to describe the um, scope and magnitude of the problem. We think the the problem that the president uh, focuses on is largely illusory. Um, what about the real problem? How you know how much has it grown? How you know many people are where and are they families or not? And is there a way to sort of generalize or or break it down as a matter of just straight immigration let's leave even humanitarian versus versus crime fighting out of it just what do we got there that that has to be addressed one way or another Sure. So I would say that really since 2014, we have seen a real increase in the number of women and children that are coming to the border, again, fleeing this violence that we're talking about in Central America. Certainly, it's not only Central Americans presenting at our southern border. There are often Africans. There are people from the Middle East. There are people from uh, Cuba, Venezuela, who have made their way up and are seeking protection. But it primarily... That 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 have made their way up to the Mexican border. Yeah, there are people who buy flights from Cameroon, you know, to fleeing Cameroon, fleeing violence there, and to this Brazil, is a stupid and make question, their way up But through. why don't they buy tickets to Toronto and come <clears> down? Any <throat> idea? Well, the, we actually do have an agreement. There is a safe third country agreement. The Trump Tell administration. Us about that. Does that we, ha- we had one prior to the Trump administration that um, went into effect essentially in 2005 between the U.S. and Canada, and it basically says that if you reach Canadian soil first, you got to seek asylum there first. Um, so usually, if people are coming and trying to seek asylum in the U.S., they will come directly to the U.S. and they'll get a tourist visa or another visa that permits them to come to an airport. Um, and disembark and then seek asylum, or they will come up through our border because they have no way to get in a visa. There's no such thing as an asylum-seeking visa. Um, So they will come to a port of entry or sometimes enter in between ports of entry at our southern border. So in the absence of a visa, you apply for (laughs) asylum, and you're, what, in this sort of nether world, you know, with neither fish nor fowl as a, as in terms of legal status? There's no way to apply for asylum outside the United States, so you need to actually reach the U- U.S. soil to make that application. But we have domestic and international legal obligations to hear those asylum claims for people who reach our soil and have a fear of returning to their home country. We are legally obligated, let's put aside moral obligations, to actually give them a chance, hear their story, see if they meet our definition for a Asylum. And in fairness to the other side, it's true, is it not? There, there's a very big practical problem of people who initiate the process and then maybe come into the country and get lost and don't show up for the fair. So I would disagree we, with that. And we also have to talk about legal representation. Yeah, yeah. So let's so, I would disagree so, with yeah. that pretty strongly. Well, please, go. So go. Sure. Explain. So I actually think, you know, when people come in, um, asylum seekers aren't actually often given their date in court. They're given a TBD on a notice to appear in court after they've passed an initial screening test, which we've heard about in the news a lot, a credible fear interview. That's a fear interview? Right. Yeah. A, a threshold screening test to see if they may be eligible for asylum. It's supposed to be a pretty low test, low threshold, because because remember, these are cases that may involve life and death. So if we get it wrong, we may be deporting somebody to torture, persecution, and death. Which so, we have done. 
which we absolutely have done and are doing increasingly under this administration. Um, so we they, they pass that test, and then they are supposed to show up in court. Often Do the people fear don't. interviews usually take place, you know, immediately? Um, they're often within about 48 yeah. hours. This administration yeah. okay. has been speeding that up and trying to do them much faster. Yeah. Um, and this administration also has new people conducting those interviews. It used to be uh, asylum officers only right. from Leon's they agency. Were, yeah. And now cred- credible fear interviews are being conducted by officers, CBP, Customs and Border Patrol officers, uh, on the border who haven't really had the training um, or the sensitivity you need to conduct those interviews. Which I'll say is incredibly important because we have to remember that this is a very, very important threshold that individuals need to meet, right? It's the first step to your asylum um, application. And we have to, you know, be mindful that these are individuals fleeing trauma. They have so much um, that they need to be able to communicate effectively. And there's no way to really do that if you don't have proper language translation if you're not comfortable with the person that you're telling this to. Um, And so, you know, making sure that asylum officers are properly trained and that the proper people are doing these uh, uh, credible fear interviews is incredibly, it's it's essential part of the application process. So I totally see it, but I do want to double back because it sounds like Mm -hmm. maybe you think I swallowed a a big one in saying that thereafter mm-hmm. there's a, so so yeah. anybody uh, is it is it is it the case so, that that's not a serious problem with people who are then released pending their okay. asylum interview to, to the extent that it's uh, yeah actually no I want to hear a professor yeah. Harrison one statistic for you so there have been studies that have shown that individuals that have counsel right. that are represented yes. in Amen. removal Thank proceedings you. families with representation show up to immigration court for their hearings 98% of the time so we don't have a problem with people not showing up we have a problem of no and basic tenets of due process. That's a great point. Okay. Yeah. And access to counsel. Access to counsel. We are now in a system where children, the kind of tender mm-hmm. age children, as the administration calls them, young, young children are showing up to court with no, represent- them, with, um, with no representation. I mean, yeah. we've mm-hmm. seen some horrific videos and read transcripts of three-year-olds basically being asked questions by judges and uh, expected to answer. I mean, it's almost put, making an absurdity of the system um, to expect that young children, particularly ones that have been separated from parents or traumatized, are kind of fending for themselves in court now with no access to counsel. And it's getting it, that that issue has been getting worse. And we so we can't go into all the labyrinthine legal requirements, but the Flores case I think is a very big part of the overall equation. I mean, I think you actually have some personal experience working in, the, in yeah. that sort of leviathan of a case. I mean, it's a sort of many cases and a whole set of commands, but what's the basic skinny about with the Flores case? So the Flores settlement emanated out of a decade of litigation. Uh, it's a settlement that was signed into effect in 1997 uh, and set forth a basic floor for what kinds of conditions children in detention, particularly unaccompanied minors at the time that it was um, it was enacted, um, what kind of conditions they need to be in in a detention facility. But the overarching principle behind Flores is that children should be in the least restrictive setting possible. By the way, the, that, pla- the plaintiffs in Flores were the chi- were the were children. They were, were children in immigration the- custody in the children United States. In Im- okay, and so um, and. Uh, and it set forth that um, if the, kind of an order of, uh, ch- of family members who could take custody of these children as being like the ones that the government should be seeking out first and then where that was impossible, uh, listed out a set of basic humanitarian conditions that would 
kind of um, operate in any detention facility that a child would would be in. I became aware um, of this settlement because back in 2006 and seven, I represented children in immigration custody uh, in a small town right outside of Austin, Texas, called the T. Don Hutto facility. It was kind of an experiment by the Bush administration to detain children and their parents in this facility. Was it private? It was actually run by the Corrections Corporation of America, a private prison company that had no business managing or training or accountability or supervision or anything of the like to to work with children. And it was bad for its time. The guards were threatening separation of parents, kids from their parents as part of a disciplinary measure. Uh, And so we went in, we filed a lawsuit uh, when I was at the ACLU against ICE for violating the Flores settlement because the most basic dictates of of the settlement were not being um, followed. And, you know, similar to kind of some of the arguments we saw now, most of the folks in the facility were asylum seekers. Uh, but they were there were families in this facility that had been detained for over a year in these in these horrific conditions and um, and so we litigated very uh, strenuously with the administration. The administration said, well, the reason that they needed to put these families in detention was as a deterrent because otherwise adults were smuggling children across the border um, and they wanted to stop that and yet they had not a single case of child smuggling to back up their justification for holding these families. And after um, uh, some lengthy litigation, the facility was ultimately shut down um, for kids. Uh, Like we were just talking about, there were studies that had been done also that with some intensive supervision in the community, um, these immigrant families were showing up at 99% of the rate, studied by the Vera Institute for Justice, um, you know, showing up in court and, and kind of maintaining their tracking through the system as their cases proceeded. And so now, I mean, fast forward these many years, obviously Flores is now, I never, it was a settlement that seemed kind of obscure relatively, but now has been in the news because it has been the basis for which um, advocates have been challenging the current conditions of migrant kids. Well, and, and also, though, a major goal, uh, goal of the Trump administration is to try to get out to from, from, okay. from under yeah. Flores. And am I right? So it's a huge case, but it really has to do with the conditions of people before their claims are. It's really the equivalent of, un, of, of conditions of detention case. And yeah? it's also meant to, to prevent long-standing right. detention. Mm-hmm. So it's also about the duration <laughs> of detention. There are legal obligations that the government government has after, I think it's after a month of children being in detention. And so part of what the Trump administration has been trying to do is to get out of those obligations. And So been- one more basic question on the law, because, we, you know, we've talked about, for, first of all, actually another prefatory question, any, any vague sense of the number of would-be asylum seekers who are now massed and let's let's say the you know southern border yeah so i can say you know we still have three family detention centers and one i think important point is obama came in and his administration essentially ended family detention the detention of immigrant families he then resurrected it in 2014 mean they ended it they did. Doris Meisner came in, the former commissioner of yeah. the INS, the Immigration Naturalization Service, and, and decided that they weren't going to detain families A family anymore. that was here? Uh, families would be released to the community. I would say, yeah. in my experience of working inside these detention yeah. centers, I would say 95% or more of these families have a place to go, have yeah. someone in the community they're planning to live with when they get here. Um, there are very few people who don't have right. a place okay. to go. I, I see what you mean. Um, so, but the, 
family aid detention was resurrected in 2014, and there was a purpose-built facility. It started in New Mexico and then shifted to Texas. So we have Dilly, which is our largest immigration detention center in the United States. It houses up to 2,400 women and children. There's about 1,700 of them right there right now. There's another one not too far away in Carnes City, Texas, and then one very small facility in Berks County, Pennsylvania. Um, so we have these three detention centers um, that actually are still operating now. Um, but then at the border, we have many more asylum seekers, and we haven't gotten to this yet well, today. Right. But a very new a new policy under the Trump administration is what they call the migrant protection protocols, um, which advocates often call remain in Mexico or even tongue-in-cheek migrant persecution protocols. Right. As of right now, there are 55,000 people, asylum seekers, who haven't been allowed to come into the U.S. while their claims are waiting in immigration court. Um, to They're be adjudicated. In They're in Mexico. Which is also considered, in this sense, a safe country. Is that right? They're a lot, they can stay in, and it's been determined. There is no bilateral safe third country agreement with Mexico, so it's different than Canada. The Trump administration has certainly been putting pressure on Mexico in various ways to get them to house and accommodate these asylum seekers. But that is not happening. These people are living in uh, extremely dangerous conditions. The cartels tent operate and prey on them yeah. at the border. Exactly. We have tent cities on the Mexican side of the border. And just to be clear, Virtually none of these people are Mexican, right? These are. This is really northern tri- a northern triangle issue of people who come through and are waiting. Mexicans are supposed to be excluded from the policy. However, yeah. some of them have been <laughs> uh, have been rejected. The way things are working, things are changing very fast. Um, there have been people wrongfully um, turned back to Mexico who are from Mexico and fleeing violence in Mexico. Okay. Um, but most of them are coming from from Central America, Cuba, Venezuela. All right. A final legal question. Then I'd like to turn to sort of possible solutions, uh, among other things. Um, you, we've we've given several real reasons why people are fleeing, and among other, so you you talked about gang violence, but I think Leon, you also mentioned family violence and domestic right. violence. You also mentioned poverty. Which, what is the state of the law now? Of what conditions should you be able to show them entitle you to asylum, and which don't? The, the the trend of the law uh, under under Obama and the immigration courts under Obama uh, was premised on an idea that's been part of asylum and refugee law forever, which is that basically, uh, if you are a a victim of private violence, uh, but that is because of your being in one of the categories that are protected Including under gender? traditional refugee and asylum law, not gender. Not gender. Um, but yes, social group. So the, 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 the five categories are, are national origin, religion, race, political opinion, uh, and, and social group. And what body and of law are we talking about? Where we is are this? talking basically about the Geneva Convention on Refugees that goes back to the 1950s. The United States was a signatory. Uh, all mm-hmm. kinds of countries were signatories uh, that basically created this international definition of what it means to be a refugee, and which in turn has been adopted into our our, our federal law. Um, but if you're a victim of private violence, and and uh, based on on your uh, being in one of these categories, and the uh, public safety institutions and the judicial institutions of your country are unable to protect you from that violence. That gives rise to a claim to refugee status. Uh, and so the trend was uh, to really 
be very liberal with what the definition of social group would be. Uh, the so trend we in the courts? In, in, the, in the immigration courts and in the administration, uh, certainly the advocacy community was arguing for even more, actually, than what we were doing in the Obama administration. But there were immigration court decisions. And immigration um, judges, by the way, are Article One. judges. What, what's they're, an they're Department judge? of Justice employees, okay. uh, basically. Not, right. Uh, that 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 sort of uh, started uh, really trying to amp- amplify the, this definition of uh, when you're talking about domestic violence, when you're talking about gang violence, of, of what had you uh, in a um, in one of these protected categories. Attorney General Sessions did something that is uh, unique, not unheard of. Uh, Attorney General Holder did it too, which is to reach down into the administrative immigration courts and to take certain decisions into their own hands so they could announce a principle of law and policy on a particular issue. Uh, Attorney General Holder did it to actually uh, provide for uh, uh, legal representation as a matter of right for uh, immigrant children with disabilities. Attorney General Sessions did it to actually narrow the definitions of what uh, what it means to be in a social group uh, and therefore able to make an asylum claim. And I'm sure Professor Harris has a ton more to say about that than, than I've been able to articulate But again, so far. just to be clear, it's a little strange. Yeah. We normally think of the court as being a separate entity. So we have this funny institution that's critical for the whole area, which is people who are technically in the chain of command that goes up to the attorney general and the president, and yet they have a certain cultural independent status to, you know, play it on the square. Yeah, and when we get to solutions, that would be one of my biggest ones here is is an independent immigration court, an independent immigration court system where judges had independence and weren't subject to quotas and kind of the whims of the politicals in the executive branch. Well, Um, can you spell that out? I actually, why don't we, we can shift there and then where I was going to go, we'll kind of end with, but but, um, so what do you mean by, well, first of all, why is the thing that you're uh, looking for a solution to such a big practical problem now? And spell out just what you mean by, you know, independent yeah. or the, the sense in which they are not now. Yeah, so I think the law had been developing in a certain way, as as Leon explained, where individuals who were fleeing domestic violence, and we're not just, we're talking about countries where femicide, so the killing of women, the homicide of women, the levels of femicide are higher than anywhere else in the world. So women are killed Again, in these countries. These simply, the yeah, there's the, the, the levels of machismo, the culture is such that there is absolute impunity for violence against women and for killing of women and girls. Um, so it, it's pretty serious stuff that we are looking at here. And, and domestic violence um, and domestic violence being someone being granted asylum because they're fleeing domestic violence has been a very political hot potato literally since 1996 to 2009. Um, And then in 2014, we saw a first case where a woman from Guatemala was granted asylum uh, based on fleeing domestic violence. Uh, What Sessions did was come in just a few years later and overturn that decision. And then successive attorney generals, Attorney General Barr has done the same thing uh, in another arena. This is a super complicated area of law, particular social group and how we define that. All right, but is the it. basic problem that you're underscoring that they are subject to the supervision or the even legal standard making of an attorney general as opposed to 
they know their boss is up there, and if they don't lean the boss's way, they're going to. You're you're exactly. worried about the ultimate control and the attorney general. Exactly. But it is a very complicated exactly. point because, of course, immigration is inherently, you know, very much uh, normally an executive issue. All right. Well, we've now launched into try. You know, what what's the what is to be done here? I, I want to double back at the end, I guess, toward the bigger cultural political point. But but when we talked in advance of the um, of this uh, discussion, there were a few things that if you were if you were writing the the book and could could uh, enact or, or have the Congress pass, you would do so. Top uh, close to the top of Lindsay's list would be independent judges located outside the executive branch. You think would mean a, bi- a big thing because sure. they were no longer subject to these fiats by the holders and sessions of the world, or maybe I should say by the sessions of the world. Okay, <laughs> exactly. uh, are there other things along these lines on a wish list? Yeah, I mean, for for, for me, the, at least two of the solutions to get going, and I think it's, it's a, a lot of different things that we need to do, and also some serious cultural change we need to push for in the U.S. Um, you know, but the first is to... Uh, think about how we work with the sending countries uh, to really address the root causes. And so what we end up doing, and by the way, we were far from innocent of this in, in the Obama administration, what we end up doing is putting pressures on these governments that actually deepen the problems that are generating migration in the first place. How so? Um, because we put um, burdens on them in terms of, 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 their, uh, of their border control. Uh, we do the same thing to Mexico. Uh, that all comes from somewhere. And so when countries are already under economic stress, when they are already uh, have degraded uh, public institutions, Institutions that puts even more pressure on them. Uh, and so instead of uh, being in a constructive posture with those co- uh, really work on building rule of law, building democratic institutions, uh, reinforcing uh, uh, human rights-based uh, policing, uh, if you're not focused on those things, at the end of the day, uh, you're actually making making things worse, and you know, really interesting. Look at look at what's happened um, uh, in in the Trump administration. Yes. So he comes in, he's beating his chest, and migration sort of dips for the first couple of months, and then it's just been growing and growing and growing. The louder he gets, the more aggressive he gets. Uh, the more the the more we double down on enforcement, the more migration grows. So it's telling you something that this. Enforcement-only approach is destined to fail. Uh, but what's your, do you, what's your take on that? Why, why does that happen, do you think? Um, I think we have to remember that, you know, the idea that the harsh policies in the United States and the harsh rhetoric and the racist rhetoric from the president is going to deter someone from coming here when the alternative is almost certain death. Makes no sense. It's not well, logical. Okay, I see that, but what? But what's the reason for the counter effect? If you, you what you're pausing, well, you think it's a coincidence. First, so I want to be careful because I think we really don't know. Yeah. Uh, in uh, all, all we know is the correlation between the rhetoric and the um, uh, and 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 the growth in migration. Um, could smugglers be playing a role in sort of uh, of driving this narrative of, hey, guess what? The, you, you listen to this guy. The gates are going to close, so get there as fast as you can. Maybe. But I worry about that kind of analysis because I think there, there may be a whole lot more going on on the ground uh, that, that we just don't know. Uh, and, and so I, um, I, I can speculate on some reasons, some things that are going on, but I don't know that we know everything that's going on. 
Anything else on the wish list of the different organizations uh, either in the room or that you know about? Yeah, I think that um, I want to get back to something Vanita raised, which is for the people who do make it here, yes, there are kind of push and pull factors with migration and with forced migration in particular. Um, So we can try and prevent people from coming here. And the Obama administration tried to do that. They launched a public policy campaign essentially on TV and radio in Central America saying, don't come, it's dangerous, (laughs) you won't get asylum. The weather sucks. We'll put you in detention centers. The food is terrible. Actually, You literally will send you back. I mean, yeah. the journey itself is so perilous. Right. Exactly. And so actually, I mean, that was the danger that folks were pointing to. Yeah. A lot of these kids and families that are coming over have been, you know, there have been bandits on the trains. Yeah. They've been brutalized, sexually assaulted. So the and it's costing them real. their life savings yeah. to yeah. have supposed you know, yeah. helpers who are right. just, right. I will say every person I know, every mother I have met who has decided to make that journey with her children knew it was a dangerous journey. And she decided she made the calculation, as Andrea said, that it was better to take that risk than to stay where she was for her safety. So for the people who do get here, um, what Vanita was saying about case management programs. So under the Obama administration, they launched the family case management program so that instead of detaining families, they had this pilot where they would let families be released and go into intensive case management, make sure the kids are in school, make sure they have vaccinations, uh, make sure that they have access to legal counsel. And it wasn't a perfect program, but it was it was it was a step in the right direction. I think uh, the Trump administration quickly did away with that policy, and I think that that is a, a better policy in terms of better use of taxpayer money. Uh, right now, we're paying three hundred twenty dollars a day or a thousand dollars for a family of three to be detained, for a mom and two kids to be detained in a, in a family detention center for for one day. Yeah. Um, so that really and adds there are still up. hundreds of kids separated, and until recently, sure. the Trump administration, I think five hundred plus, wasn't even able to identify how many were. So it really does right. seem like it. We've like literally lost dereliction. the children. So let the families stay <laughs> yeah. together. Let them live in our communities. These are not dangerous people. There's nothing to say that they are. And let them access counsel because counsel can actually screen out, you know, cases that are not strong, cases that are maybe frivolous, cases that where there may be issues of fraud. Well, what uh, about the, I mean, you mentioned effective. the 98% figure, which I didn't know and is arresting. Do you do you have a sense of the percentage of people who, in fact, don't get counsel? What kind of what's the gravity of that problem? Uh, it's huge. So right now, the, the fifty-five thousand people I mentioned who are stuck on the other side of the Mexican border, one point three percent of those folks have found attorneys. And then it, there's lots of issues with access to counsel and how much the lawyers actually get to meet and interact with those right. clients. The government has also sent up, set up, this is new, port courts on the border, which are essentially courts, immigration courts, in tents, where the immigrants are required to show up at the border for a hearing. They're supposed to get there at 4 a.m. for an 8 a.m. hearing. Um, on the way, they're attacked by cartels. They're allowed to meet with their attorney for no more than half an hour. And then they are judged by a judge on video camera sitting somewhere else in an immigration court. But the Associated Press just recently um, found that there's just under 70,000 migrant children in U.S. custody, mm-hmm. who presumably the vast majority of whom have no counsel either, which, by the way, uh, they reported is 42 percent higher than last year to Leon's point that. You know, yeah. the rhetoric has gotten mm-hmm. heated and the, the, the kind of draconian enforcement has gotten even worse, but it hasn't. I mean, we are at an all-time high for migrant children in detention right now. And we're holding the kids for longer. I had a client who was held from August to November, a 12-year-old boy who was held for five months. His family were here ready to receive him. We processed all the paperwork, but he just is in this limbo and not released. He had a lawyer waiting for him. 
I mean, I, I do think on this issue of solutions, this is going, I mean, there were efforts, obviously, at comprehensive immigration reform, in, um, and there's been cycles of this that have failed. But it, there clearly is going to need to be, um, we can't do this piecemeal in terms of the solutions. I mean, the courts issues, the detention issues, the issues around, it isn't just uh, that the U.S., in some ways, um, has abdicated any role in understanding or playing a role in shaping the um, economic situation and security situation in Central America. We also there's been a history of U.S. government involvement uh, in Central America that, in many ways, destabilized yeah. the countries. And we can go back to the '70s if we really want to understand. But but there has to be some kind of foreign policy um, uh, part of this too. And so it. I mean, there are a lot of pieces around this, and I think it has to be animated, and any legislation has to be animated by what kind of values you want to undergird an immigration system uh, in this country that we just somehow, our lawmakers have failed repeatedly to do or to have bipartisan consensus that would get it over the finish line. But so there are different pieces of this that each of us see from the work that we do, but in the end, it is going to take a comprehensive set of solutions that deal with each of these pieces to really kind of meet the humanitarian crisis and need and security needs that the country yeah. has on, on these issues. I mean, it's interesting. I see Leon shaking his head. At least pre-Trump, you thought of this as an area that maybe was ripe for bipartisan reform. There are certain ways in which the immigration issues appeal to basically, you know, Republican you know, paradigms and stories and Democrats as well. And it seemed that it could be in the offing. Okay, I'd like to... Re- to end sort of with this vexing problem that you just referred to, Vanita, of, of values and the what perhaps what Leon talked about is the nativist impulses at the root of this issue. So it does seem as if Trump's presidency um, exposed this kind of raw, ugly vein of anti-immigrant sentiment that seems now... Um, to range at least across, well, fairly broadly across the country. Now, one of the things we're trying to think of this week is, you know, what happens in a year or four or, you know, whenever they, whenever they, U.S. Marshals have to drag Trump out of the Oval Office, what becomes of this exposed kind of ugly culture of seemingly, you know, passionate fear and loathing of, of, immigrants how do you address things at the how do you tell the story and perhaps you tried to do this in government of the amazing you know contributions and importance of immigrants to our society how do you make them be less threatening how do you if you know what does it take time a generation 2050 to go at this deep in apparently now entrenched social cultural problem and i just you know if any of you have any thoughts about that that's where i'd kind of like to to end things i mean i I think part of it is those those of us uh advocating on behalf of immigrants need to resist the impulse to always highlight the very most successful immigrants as you know this is why we need immigrants so you know because uh, Steve Jobs was of, of Syrian heritage. We should not fear Syrian refugees. Uh, you know, and, and, and the problem is I also really like families, uh, immigrant families, where mom or dad is a welder and they're taking care of their kids and they're working really hard. And I think those stories need to get as much play 
uh, because that also then explains how immigrant families are just like American families. I mean, that, that, was, that was the thing I remember going to the refugee processing center in, in Turkey and meeting a bunch of Syrian, Iraqi, and Iranian families. And I was like, they do all the same <laughs> stuff we guy. do. Right. Yeah, there's just nothing different here. Right. And, and, and so, so the, the less we say, oh, well, we're, you know, it's really great if we get Steve Jobs. We don't want anybody other than Steve Jobs. Uh, we, we've fallen into a really dangerous way of, 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 of talking about this issue. In fact, people who are here and adopt, you know, American values of, of supporting community, family, work, faith, if that's part of it, that's where this discussion needs to be. I know. Are you I mean, I think we have to, I agree with all of that. And I think we also have to be really conscientious and, and be very honest with ourselves about when we're having this, you know, greater discussion about immigration, you can't ignore the racial dynamics that are at play and, and why the president is choosing to implement the policies he's choosing to. Um, they have a disproportionate impact on communities of color. They have a disproportionate impact on Latino communities the specifically, the policies? the policies themselves. I mean, we've spent a a lot of time talking today about policies related to um, the crisis on the border, the humanitarian issues on the border and family detention. And we haven't touched even the draconian policies that this administration is putting in place to damage and harm families in the interior related to, you know, access to uh, access to services and benefits that they're eligible for restricting their access to actually, um, you know, gain legal status and, and adjust to get, you know, lawful permanent resident status and eventually to naturalize. And so the president has been very, I think, intentional along with those around him um, about which policies they want to implement. And a large part of that is race dynamics, right? They do not want, they want to mitigate or they want to push off the date by which minorities will be the majority in the country. And so we have to be really honest about that when we're talking about immigration and what's really needed as a cultural shift in our country country moving forward Lindsay, in order to, 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 you know, heal that. You're shaking your head. I'm nodding my head because I think that's absolutely true. When I'm trying to teach asylum law to students and when um, these decisions are fundamentally not making sense and they're not understanding, wait, the judge said this in this case, but then this in another. I'm saying these are individual human beings and we are motivated by this fear of the other, right? This fear of black and brown bodies, like uh, the racial animus behind these policies is absolutely true. And I think that that's something that, you know, we as Americans need to take back. Um, I'm part of an organization. I'm, I'm on the board of directors of the Asylum Seeker Assistance Project here in D.C. And we work with asylum seekers from all over the world and help them in the period when they're not allowed to work, essentially. when the, And the Trump administration today issued rules that would increase that period from 150 days to 365 days not being able to work legally in the United States. Um, but the organization works to bridge divides between communities and bring people in like, hey, have dinner with an asylum seeker. Invite an asylum seeker to your Thanksgiving dinner table. Um, you know, talk about, uh, you know, do job readiness training with them. Help do informational interviews. Uh, assist these folks as they as they adjust to life in the U.S. And I think it, 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 we do need to do that on an individual and an institutional level to break down barriers and help people understand, as Leon says, that, you know, we are all human beings. We are all families. We are motivated by the same things in our lives. 
um, and try to try to push back on this vilification of migrants, of immigrants, of asylum seekers um, that really is new in 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 some ways in the U.S., but also a very very deep and yeah. old trend right. in right. others. Vanita, you go everywhere. You, you know, you're. I mean, you're <laughs> no, it's true. And when you were in civil rights, but now too, you, you're not. You're not only. You're, you're you're primarily not speaking to the converted. I mean, you really confer, You know, look at this day to day. How you know? How have you tried, or what have you found? is in fact way, a way to make kind of inroads to this you know sense of of fear hostility misinformation whatever where i mean it's a tough tough nut to crack and everyone seems to be agreeing it's an indispensable one. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I look often to history and kind of what this country has been through to understand the moment we find ourselves in because again, um, as pronounced as these dynamics feel and as polarized as we are right now at this moment, this is not the first time the country has been through something like this and where immigrants have been blamed for a whole host of um, kind of economic and other insecurities that people are feeling or confronting in their communities. And but it's something that we have to get through. It doesn't just kind of resolve itself. And the demographics of the country are changing uh, rapidly. And um, and I think that what's what's interesting right now is we have sometimes a scarcity model of on these issues. Mm -hmm. And um, and yet when you have a lot of folks in the business community actually talking about the importance of immigration, about the fact that if we don't have continued immigration, we're actually not going to have a robust labor force that's going to impact our economy for everyone who's been here maybe for a generation and, and the like. And so it is – we have to be able to tell these stories and have these moment, moments of connection. There are – you know, people are going to fewer places physically where they would commune across communities like churches and faith institutions. That's happening in some communities. But a lot of folks, it's like digital and online. And, yeah. and, and so it removes the ability to have some of those very human-to-human contexts where you are exposed to people who don't look like you. My husband was a refugee from Vietnam, fled his whole family – fled the, the war in Vietnam. They were welcomed into a, um, a Christian home in Northern Virginia. Folks who had, didn't know a Vietnamese person to save their lives, like brought in this family of six. Um, and the, the sponsor family really tells of their incredible transformation in Northern Virginia around the Vietnamese community when they when so many of, of these folks met Vietnamese refugees and how it transformed their community, how it transformed their understanding of immigration and the like. And it's not to it sounds Pollyanna, but this is going to require cultural kind of we are we are in a culture of polarization right now. We are going to have to uh, all of us find our way to push on the culture of. Um, on the importance of immigration, but also on what country we want to be for the next uh, 20, 30 years. This is a moment where we will be defining the country we deserve to have, the country we want to be, and to be shaping it uh, while understanding, um, you know, all of the myths and misinformation that is fueling the, the fear in the moment. But I believe in the end, immigration has been, you know, a transformative force in America. And um, we are going to have to push past the fear and misinformation and some of the violence that has been incurring because of, of the rhetoric um, to shape the country we want to be. And there's an end, I think. Um, thank you very much to Leon, Andrea, Lindsay, and Vanita. Thank you very much, listeners, for tuning into Talking Feds. Thank you very much, uh, the George Washington University Law School for being here. Uh, if you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. 
And please take a moment to rate and review this one. You can follow us on Twitter at Talking Feds Pod to find out about future episodes and other Feds related content. And you can also check us out on the web at talkingfeds.com where we have full episode transcripts. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segment. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. (laughs) Talking Feds is produced by Jenny Josephson, Dave Moldovan, Anthony Lamos, and Rebecca Lopatin. David Lieberman is our contributing writer with additional research by Sam Trachtenberg. Production assistance by Richard Gunther and Sarah Philippoum. Thank you very much to GW Law for hosting us, and thanks to Hayden Pendergrass of the GW Law Student Bar Association, as well as the GW Criminal Law Society and the GW Immigration Law Society, our co-sponsors for this event. Thanks very much to the incredible Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.